It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody could ever tell you that you couldn't do it, because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. That's some fun. Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. You can also tune in across various podcast platforms. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. Multiple ways for you to interact with us here on the program. 201-939-4513. We'll be taking your phone calls. You can also head to social media using hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter or directly interact with us. At Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. We're going to continue to discuss some takeaways from the Monday night game between the Giants and the Steelers. Joe Judge spoke to the media yesterday. We'll recap what he had to say. We'll also look ahead to Sunday's game. It's a quick turnaround, people, when you play on Monday night before you know it. You got another game on Sunday as the Giants will have their first road game and they'll visit the Chicago Bears. Paul, have you recuperated since Monday night? Because I know whenever we've got these quick turnarounds, you tend to lose track of days because it comes at you fast, and they did not give us any time to adjust to this 2020 season, it seems. I've got news for you, Lance. I lost track of the days about six months ago. That's <laughs> what's you. happened with this pandemic. I, I, you know, Everything is just turned upside down. The entire wheelbarrow is on the sidewalk, and it's just made a mess of things. So, you know, it was somewhat normal in that we had a game the other night. Uh, it was not normal in that there was no crowd in the stands. It was not normal in that we were doing shows remotely. It was not normal in that, you know, it just just didn't feel right. It felt more like a glorified scrimmage than it did a real game, to be quite honest with you. But the bottom line is it counts, and we are moving on and very grateful to be moving on because I think we all want the season to be whole. Absolutely. Well, the one thing I will say, big picture, I think it's great that the NFL got in week one, knock on wood, without any hiccups, Paul. Things went relatively smoothly. We got, for the most part, I would say, which was maybe somewhat of a surprise, high caliber football. I don't think it was as sloppy as I had anticipated, so I think that was another positive takeaway. But all of these months that we had speculated, that we talked about the challenges, the obstacles, for us to say that they got in every game this past weekend between Thursday night and Monday night, and now we're all of a sudden entering week two. I think that says an awful lot about everybody involved in the league office, the coaches, the players, you name it, and that is certainly a positive development here moving forward. I would agree with that part of your sentiment, Lance, for sure. Now, here's what I do not know. I did not get uh, in conversation with the NFL offices, so I don't know what the numbers were in regards to penalties that were called, average number of penalties during the course of a week compared to what we had during the first weekend of the season. Uh, I suspect they were lower. It just seemed that way from the games that I watched, but I can't say for sure. Uh, that's a pleasant surprise, and certainly the Giants, with their discipline, I mean, you, you can't complain about, you know, what they did, uh, considering the fact that, you know, usually a coach will say anything under six penalties is kind of like the litmus test, and the Giants had only four. I mean, and even Pittsburgh had only three. So yeah. you'd have to say it was a, a relatively clean game. Now, here's what, what I would say. On one hand, I will say I really believe this because of the eye test. I, I watched, um, let's see, I saw the Bears-Lions game at 1 o'clock, simultaneously watched Philadelphia-Washington. Then I watched the Dallas-Tampa Bay game, and then I watched the New uh, Orleans-Tampa no, no, Bay, New Orleans, yeah. Tampa Bay. Then I watched uh, uh, half of the Dallas game at night before I finally just knocked off. So I saw basically three and a half games on Sunday and a full game on Monday. I feel very confident to tell you, that the, the thing that I saw that was terribly lacking was the timing routes in the passing games. There were consistently, in every single game that I saw, passes that were off the mark, routes that were not run correctly, routes that were run flat-out wrong, where the quarterback thought the guy was going left and the guy went right. So it, there's no question there was, in my mind, a significant disconnect in the passing games around the league. To me, that was the most obvious glaring problem 
with the quality of football that we saw in week number one. The penalties, again, I don't have the stats. I suspect that they were down based on the eye test. The other thing that I definitely suspected, and again, I don't have the stats. I really, maybe it's my fault. Maybe it was obtainable. I'd like to know what the stats were regarding kickoff and punt return averages because I thought going in that special teams would be lacking in terms of coverage units and we would have better return averages in week one than we usually see around the league. It did seem that way, at least according to the eye test, that punt returns were up, but I can't prove it because I don't have the numbers. Well, just as a means of comparison, because I was looking this up, the Giants had eight penalties against the Cowboys in the opener last season. So they cut that in half if you just want to look at the difference between one season versus the other. And as you mentioned, not only did the Giants have just four penalties, but the four came only, Paul, on the offensive side of the ball. So Mm -hmm. you had no defensive setbacks, no special team setbacks. We could talk about the turnovers and some missed tackling here or there, of course, but I'm talking about just from a pure penalty standpoint – They all came on the offensive side of the ball. You had two false start penalties. You had the delay of game penalty, and then you had the Evan Ingram offensive pass interference. And speaking of that, Paul, the one trend that I was going to add to what your observations were all about in terms of the timing maybe being off between the quarterbacks and the wide receivers, from a penalty standpoint, the one thing that I'm going to monitor moving forward, because from all the games that I observed between Thursday and Monday night, There seems to be a bit of an inconsistency in terms of offensive pass interference, specifically when guys are pushing off a little. Remember the ending of the Cowboys-Rams game? That came to the forefront. We saw one that you could have argued Chase Claypool when he pushed off slightly to make that great catch between two Giants defenders. Then, of course, Evan Ingram was involved in one. I'd like to see how that plays out, Paul, moving forward because – only with one week, you can argue, okay, in some games it was emphasized, some games it was let go. That may be one of those calls that's going to be that very touchy-feely type of feel throughout the course of this season. Well, and as we both know, they did eliminate the coach's challenge on the offensive yeah. and pass interference calls and defensive pass interference calls as well. So, you know, and quite honestly, I think we were both in agreement early on last year that rule needed to go away. Because it just muddied things up 10 times worse than what they were, right? 100%. Completely with you. I have no complaints that those type of calls can't be reviewed. I'm just talking about at least with the naked eye test, whether or not we're going to have a little bit more consistency. But I've said this time and time again, Paul, and I would hope that you can at least relate or somewhat agree with what I'm talking about. Whenever you're talking about judgment calls and the human element, you're going to have some sense of inconsistency. I think while we don't want to accept it, you have to accept that the things we see in slow motion on our televisions with the luxuries of various slow motion angles are very different than what the official, whether or not the official is right in front of the play or a little bit behind the play, you're going to get inconsistencies. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, and you know, that's what the human element is all about. And people like to say, well, you know, that's fine because we're all humans. Well, yeah, but there's so much blood, sweat, and tears and money and, and impacts of, of, of mistakes that, you know, I'm all for replay when it's used effectively to try to get as many calls right as we possibly can. But then when we create a rule like we did last year with the pass interference that really doesn't fix the problem but makes the problem worse, then you're just better off not having the rule. You know? And that's why they made the right decision in now, terms of yeah. removing the rule. Now, I, I am looking up, believe it or not, Lance, I was able to find the numbers here. Last year... Average penalties per team in the NFL was 6.69 per game. That's over the course of the season, though, correct? Over the course of the season, 6.69 penalties per game was the average per NFL team. Now, this year, after one week, the average was 5.66. So one penalty less on average per team in week one of the regular season compared to last year's average as a whole. So, so interestingly enough, uh, the football was a lot cleaner, unless the officials were just eating their whistles a little more. Which is also possible, or at least just getting a feel for the game. Because remember, while we talk about, Paul, no preseason games, from the players' perspective, remember, 
this was the first go-around for the officials in quite some time, right? Yeah. These guys weren't on the field until you got to go back to the playoffs last year. So, you know, this was also their routine getting back into the flow of things just as much as it was from the player's standpoint. And by the way, the Giants' average last year was 5.6 penalties per game. Yeah, they were not a terribly penalized team last year. You know, that tends to get missed in translation, and I track down every penalty every game. The Giants last season, in terms of their totals, they had 90 penalties. That was pulled the third fewest in the NFL. So you would think about there were games where I would argue, hey, there were mishaps that came back to bite the Giants, but overall, they didn't have a high volume of penalties, Paul. To me, my biggest takeaway of 2019 was the penalties came at the worst possible time, though, (laughs) when they were right striking in the opponent's territory and then would get an offensive line penalty, which would back them up 10 yards, a holding, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it would take them out of field goal range. So it wasn't volume last year. It was the timing issue with all of those penalties. Well, consider the fewest penalized teams were the Colts at 79, Carolina at 87, and then the Giants at 90, as you mentioned. You know, you certainly could not have complained about the quantity. Uh, Again, regarding your comment, they just didn't seem to come at good times. And look, unfortunately, that is also a characteristic of a team that's struggling because in key spots when they really need to make a play, that's when things break down. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Talking about some of the observations from week one. We'll look ahead to the Bears matchup in a little bit. But before we open up the phone lines, Paul, Joe Judge spoke to the media. This was his first press conference since he observed the film and reviewed the film from game number one. And there were a lot of questions about the offensive line, which was not necessarily surprising given the fact that the Giants only ran the ball 20 times for 29 yards and Saquon had 15 for six and eight of those were for negative yardage. He said that overall, and I'm paraphrasing his comments, he liked the fight out of the offensive line. He liked the fact that those guys went to work for all four quarters. We're not going to be naive. Of course, there's work to be done for all five guys, okay? But he liked how Andrew Thomas handled himself considering his first test ball was against Bud Dupree, who clearly, as we saw Monday night, is a relentless worker in terms of stopping the run and getting after the quarterback. He liked how Cam Fleming battled in terms of what he was up against with T.J. Watt, and the same could be said for Nick Gates. So he's not questioning the effort. He's not questioning the fight of these guys. It's just a matter, of course, the chemistry continuing to improve as well as the overall execution. Well, Lance, in studying the three sacks alone, and I know that's not the entire picture as to what happened the other night because the Giants' run blocking was just not there. Let's not kid ourselves. I don't know what happened. But in terms of the three sacks, all three were on Steelers' zone blitzes. One sack when they sent five, one sack when they sent six, and one sack when they sent seven. And it looked like a jailbreak, you know, on on each one of them. Because either somebody was coming clean or two or three guys were coming in clean. So, look, in football, coaches will tell you there are three factors that every player must go through on every single play, okay? It's alignment, assignment, and execution. That's what Coaching Football 101 says. You have to do all three. Every player, when when Belichick says and, and a judge says do your job, they're referring to those three things, alignment, assignment, and execution. I don't know exactly what happened in terms of every one of those three items on, on all of the poor run-blocking plays, uh, although I will tell you this, I do believe I have an idea of what happened on the sacks, but I'm not going to get into it here. Uh, Those are the three things you must have to succeed, and the Giants did not have those three things on enough of plays offensively to give themselves a chance to win. As far as the run blocking is concerned, Paul, I think the most troubling aspect of the performance overall is that We said Saquon had 15 carries, and I mentioned eight of them resulted in negative yards. And I would say the majority of the ones that ended in negative yards, by the time he got the handoff, Paul, from Daniel Jones, there was somebody in the backfield. 
more often than not. And that's an issue because if you don't give your running back at least somewhat of a decent start to make an initial adjustment or move, because what makes Saquon so unique is he can single-handedly make people miss because of his shiftiness. But if you don't even give him an opportunity, Paul, to make the initial shifty move, he stands absolutely no chance, regardless of if it's Barry Sanders back there, if it's Walter Payton, if it's Saquon Barkley. I don't care. And that, to me, was a big part of why the Giants had no semblance whatsoever in terms of their rushing attack on Monday night. Well, here's the problem with that, Lance. They went in with the right game plan. They ran either two or three tight end sets on half of their offensive plays. That's what they were supposed to do to give themselves the best chance to win. The game plan was correct. So in that case, okay, the alignment was good. They did what they were supposed to do. They aligned up with the type of game plan that should have given them an opportunity to win the game. Now, so what went bad? The assignments went bad. I'm pretty sure from looking at the tape, the assignments went bad on a bunch of those plays. And execution obviously went bad on a bunch of those plays. And it wasn't just the offensive line. When you talk about going to double and triple tight end sets on half of your snaps, clearly the tight ends are just as culpable and just as blamable for not making the appropriate blocks that they should have made. I had a dispute with with, uh, uh, John Schmelk the other day. We were talking about this. John John didn't think in, in his mind that the game plan was good. He, 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 was, he was against that. I disagreed with him. I thought that the game plan was outstanding. Actually, I loved the game plan. Problem was the execution was just horrid. And, you know, you can't, you can't run half of your sets with a heavy package. That is multiple tight end package. You can't do that and then not have them block. I mean, what's the point of having them there if they're not going sure. to block? Okay, you're better off then going with an empty backfield, going with five receivers, and just winging it like a video game. Yeah, if your tight ends are not going to block, don't put it. You know, you it doesn't. So, so to me, it's more on them. It's not the game plan. The game plan was great. If they had just executed the game plan, they might have had a chance. But, but they didn't. They basically shot themselves in the foot by by playing the proper formation and not not following through on what they were supposed to do. Just to give you an idea in terms of the three tight ends and their usage, Evan Ingram played 94% of the offensive snaps on Monday night. Caden Smith played 43%. And Levine Toilolo, who had that nice catch in that game, he played 35%. And then Eric Tomlinson, he played 3%. So you really had four tight ends. But it was really Engram Smith and Toy Lolo who were in more often than not. So yeah. that was the breakdown. So Evan played clearly many more snaps than the other two. But Caden Smith was near 50% of the offensive snaps, which goes to show you that they did have a lot of plays where they tapped into the extra tight end. Lance, Lance, they, they went uh, almost a third of their plays with three tight ends. Three! Which, is, which was exactly the right thing to do. Jason Garrett was totally correct in doing that. Sometimes he lined all three up on the same side. That's the way you want to play power football. There were other times where he went double tight ends to one side and a lone tight end to the other. There were even times when he went with the lone tight end, Ingram, as a stand-up receiver on one side, with the double tight end power formation, strong side to the opposite side. This is exactly what I talked about. I think I said this on BBK last week. I think I said it during our radio pregame show. This is the kind of stuff that I wanted him to do. As an offensive coordinator, I gave Jason Garrett an A-plus for his game plan the other night. He was doing exactly what I was hoping he would do, and I was so happy to see the formations. What I wasn't happy was, after the ball was snapped, seeing how guys weren't getting the job done. Let's open up the phone lines at 201-939-4513, hashtag Giants Chat. You could tweet directly at us as well, at Lance Meadow, one word, last name M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. Jesse is in Connecticut, joining us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Jesse? Hey, Lance. Hey, Paul. How are you guys doing today? Hi. Doing all right. What's on your mind? Uh, yeah, listen, I wanted to go back to 2017 when Gettleman took over as GM. 
And uh, at his introductory press conference, we heard a lot about, you know, his Hagmali philosophy. And, you know, while we all understood that, and when it came time for draft night, you know, we're looking there at the second overall pick, and we picked Saquon, which, who I absolutely love as a player, but in my opinion, that, that pick should have been Quentin Nelson. And uh, the Colts got him at six. But, you know, if, you, if we took Nelson with the second pick and then we went ahead and took Hernandez in the second round, I think we would have been building something as far as our offensive line because watching that game on Monday night, it, I felt terrible for Saquon. I mean, this guy is getting caught in the backfield three yards after, he's, you know, he's getting a handoff and the guy's right there in his face and he can't do nothing. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I've been a Gettleman supporter to this point. But I think he grossly uh, underestimated the uh, state of the line. Even though he was saying one thing, he, he wanted the guy to have the gold jacket, I think was his comment, you know, with the second overall pick. And, uh, you know, I think Saquon is a Hall of Fame caliber player, but, you know, we're already on year three with him. And by the time this team gets good, I mean, we're probably not going to be able to afford to keep him. You know, one of the other core philosophies that, that Football 101 tells you is that you have to be able to have an impact player that the other team is going to worry about because an impact player will force them to play you differently and it will have a ripple effect on the game plan. Now, as you look at the Giants, the truth of the matter is, who do they have on defense that's an impact player? The answer is nobody. They don't have a guy who was going to force, and I, I, I call them Excedrin players, because they will force the other team's coordinator to stay up all night on Monday night and have a headache trying to figure out how they're going to deal with that one guy before they take on the rest of your unit. Well, on offense, who, who's the impact player for the Giants? You know, you could say Evan Ingram, but he's not always healthy, so he's not always there. Daniel Jones, he's only in his second season. You know, the quarterback is always a guy you got to worry about anyway. So who's the guy? Saquon provides the Giants with that guy. I guarantee you every defensive coordinator stays up the entire night on Monday night trying to figure out what can they do to try to take Saquon out of the game. And after two seasons of back-to-back 1,000-yard years, uh, and, of course, that first year when he was healthy and, and, and just totally lit up the, the stat sheet, uh, I'd say they haven't done a very good job of doing it. Now, the Jets did it last year. You'll recall he was held to a career-low one-yard rushing in the game against the Jets. I think, Lance, you, you could check it for me, 13 carries, I think it was, in that Jets game last year. Let me confirm that. I believe that's accurate, but I'll confirm that. That and, was definitely the most recent game outside of Monday night where the Giants struggled to run the ball like that. that well, I it was the worst. That, that game was the worst I'd ever seen, and yeah. this game mimicked that Jets game for me. And why did it happen? Yeah. Because the Jets did the same thing that the, the Steelers did. They were sending all kinds of firehouse blitzes, sending all kinds of run blitzes, outnumbering the Giants at the line of scrimmage, and basically just saying, you know what, we're going to throw caution to the wind, and we're just going to flood as many bodies into the rushing lanes as we possibly can. Well, if that's the answer to do it, then to stopping him, then why doesn't everybody do it? Well, because that will only work once in a blue moon. That's why. Trust me, and, yeah. Saquon Barkley will destroy the Bears on Sunday. Trust me when I tell you that. And it was 13 well, carries for one yard against the Jets. That it was. was accurate. I thought yeah. so. But to your point, yeah. Paul, what I will add is, and we'll let you continue, Jesse, is the fact that Mike Tomlin made it very clear. The Steelers knew they wanted to take away Saquon Barkley and force Daniel Jones to be the guy. And there will probably be a number of teams that will say the same thing. Daniel, go out and beat us by getting rid of the football or having the other guys elevate their play and consistently deliver. That's, to me, going to be the difference maker for the Giants' offense. If teams are going to put all of their attention on Saquon, somebody else in the receiving core, somebody else on offense has to make the opposition pay. That, unfortunately, did not happen consistently enough against the Steelers. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you guys are saying. It's just, you know, we're going on, what, year three now? or going? Yeah, year three with Gettleman. And, and this offensive line, you know, I agree with that, Thomas. Like, I think that guy's going to be a solid player you know, going forward. But I think he just, he waited too long. You know, Nate Solder, you know, he gave him this contract because there wasn't, you know, very many options out there at that time when he took over. But, uh, you know, we had a chance to really, really 
get a real dominant guard in here with Nelson. And, you know, and then we could have brought in the running back later on, you know, because we, we, we had a lot of holes to fill, no doubt about it. But I just can't – after watching Monday's game, I just cannot watch another game of, of watching, you know, Saquon get tackled in the backfield. You know, we have all these resources and the skill positions, and we can't, we can't you know, utilize any of them if we can't block. That's just my main concern. That's my reason for calling. And like Paul said, I hope he dominates against the Bears on Sunday. I really do. But, you know, I, 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 we need to start now. We're running out of time with this guy. You know, he's, he's going to be in his fifth year, and we won't have anybody to replace him. Well, I don't think it's necessarily the urgency of just having Saquon and appreciate the phone call, Jesse. Thanks so much for weighing in. I think it's the fact that you have a relatively young offense, and the goal is you want this team to grow, this unit to grow together and have success simultaneously. It's not just a matter of the clock is ticking on Saquon's rookie contract. You know, the clock is going to be ticking on Daniel Jones. The clock's going to be ticking on Darius Slayton. I, I don't think anybody, Paul, is on an island compared to the rest of the guys. Now, you brought up the Lions Bears game, and Adrian Peterson had over 90 rushing yards, and Chicago did struggle to stop the run. In fairness, Robert Quinn didn't play in that game. He was inactive. We'll see whether or not he's going to suit up. He's the other big-time pass rusher they brought over from Dallas to pair with Khalil Mack. The only thing I would argue, Paul, is the fact that the Lions do have a little bit more veteran experience of a group that played together compared to the Giants' offensive line. And yes. I think that that's a big aspect. And, of course, at least in the early stages of the season, running games getting going. Well, I, I, will, I will give you something, and, and these numbers, you know, I, I don't always like to put a lot of credence in stats, lands because they can be hollow. But I do think it bears mention that the Bears blitzed only eight times last week against the Detroit Lions, uh, on 42 pass attempts. And the Steelers blitzed 27 times, which was a league high by far, on 41 pass attempts for the Giants. Because not only did the Steelers blitz 57-plus percent of the time against the pass, they were run blitzing too. They were sending the kitchen yeah. sink. It was a blitz creek. And, and obviously... That's something that they always do. They're the masters of the zone blitz. They've been doing this for decades, okay? The Bears, that defense is much, much, much more toothless than the Steelers' defense is. They don't nearly have the athletes or the talent that they can afford to take that kind of risk and blitz that much because they'll pay for it badly. Uh, it's not their style of defense, and, and they just don't have the players to do it. Uh, and again, if you watch the game last week, Adrian Peterson, who basically you know got up off the rocking chair after landing with the Lions only a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> well, he reunited, remember, with his old coordinator, Darryl Bevel. They and he ran rough shot over yeah. the Bears last week. I mean, if you watched it, he ran for a lot of easy yards. And he does not nearly have the speed that Saquon has. And Saquon, Saquon would, would have busted many of those runs for big plays. But Peterson just doesn't have the extra jets anymore. I will say this about your point with respect to the Bears' defense compared to the Steelers' defense. I don't disagree with you at all. I don't think they have the same level of playmaking ability in the secondary because Mike Tomlin even admitted, Paul, he said, we knew we were going to leave our secondary out on an island with all the blitzing that we were mm -hmm. going to do because he said, hey, we gave them the challenge, but we felt good when you got Joe Hayden and Micah Fitzpatrick and Steven Nelson as well as Mike Hilton out of the slot. Yeah, but remember. see, Lance, he also knows his blitzers can get home. Correct. You have to have yeah. confidence knowing your blitzers can get home before you put your secondary at risk. No doubt about it. Now, we can't dismiss Khalil Mack. Khalil Mack I'd put up there as one of the elite pass rushers, Paul. Okay? You do? You do? I don't, I do. I don't, do, I, I don't put him up there. Well, why don't you consider Khalil Mack one of the top Should we just go with the raw facts instead of opinions? Should we just what? go with raw facts? Well, what are the raw facts that, that the raw, makes the raw, you feel the raw he's facts, not an elite guy? The raw facts. To be an elite guy, you have to be a, a, a T.J. Watt type of player. Are you aware? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give – I hate doing this. I hate having to just bring out numbers, but numbers are only the only facts that sometimes you can give. Okay? Uh, Khalil Mack, in his last 18 games, has been held, held sackless in 11 of 18 games. In those 18 games, he's only had two sacks once. He has only had two tackles for a loss once in the last 18 games. Only once in the last 18 games 
has he had more than five tackles on a given weekend? Is that a game record to you? Do I do does I need it, to give you do, I, do I need to give you more page. numbers? I, but I'm also looking at the course of his career, though. I'm not okay. Just looking well, over but the but he's not the same player. Though, he's not the same player. Well, he's not the I same mean, player. He's living off reputation. Do you know in the two years since he's been traded to Chicago? Do you know what he's got? Let me tell you something. He's got 32 quarterback hits in 31 games. Do you know in the same amount of games Marcus Golden has 33 quarterback hits? Did you know that? Khalil Mack ranks 39th in the NFL in quarterback hits since he was traded to the Bears two seasons ago. 39th. How is that elite? I'm telling you, the numbers don't jump off the page. I'm not disagreeing with the you. The numbers again, not only don't jump off the page, I, they jump into the toilet bowl. Well, but once again, he's still more than capable of being a disruptive player. Okay. Since, it, 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 so since, that's like, But that would be, Paul, that would be like going into this game against the Giants and saying, well, Saquon had 15 carries for six yards, so we're easily going to be able to do the same okay, thing. Okay, but this is two years plus. This is two years plus a game we're talking about. Since the trade to the Bears, he has averaged 3.1 yard, uh, 3.1 tackles per game. Three tackles a game for a guy who's supposed to be elite and dominant. Three tackles a game? Been held sackless 11 times in 18 games? This is dominant? Well, he certainly was dominant. It's reputation, of, Lance. I, it's reputation. Well, but I will tell you this. If you go to the game last season, though, because remember, both of these teams played last season. Mack had a forced fumble on Daniel Jones in that game and a sack, so he certainly was disruptive in oh, that game. there's no question he can still flash because he's a talented player who can still flash and still make a big play on occasion. Please let me not take that away from him. He is a talented player who can still make a big play on occasion. But if you want to talk to me about elite, okay, elite, well, you better have a lot more times uh, getting sacks than getting shut out. You better average more than three tackles a game. You better have some games where you had 8, 9, 10, 11 tackles in a game. I mean, come on. you got to remember something. I saw Lawrence Taylor play for a long time. That's elite. Well, okay. No, Andre Tippett was elite. Ricky I would Jackson not even was elite. Putting Khalil Mack in the same category. Well, as that's Lawrence the way. Stanley. But so so many people want to put him in that category because they talk about how you know this guy is so awesome. He the last two years he has not been anything close to awesome. Well, he's been far more consistent with the Raiders than he was with the Bears. I'm not going to once again go up against any of those numbers that you're throwing out, but. Also, you have to keep in mind he has had two different defensive coordinators within the span of these two seasons. So in fairness, when you're playing for Vic Fangio one year and then all of a sudden Chuck Pagano comes in, what Pagano's asking him to do is not necessarily equivalent to Fangio. I mean, let's be at least not naive in that category. So this is now year two under Chuck Pagano's defense and the fact that also they lost their starting nose tackle, Eddie Goldman, which I thought was a significant loss okay. when he decided to opt out. The dynamics of the Bears' defense have changed. I'll just, make once it again, simple. I, I'm going to consider all of that stuff. I'll make it I'm not going to throw that to the he's, wayside. He's not a Batman anymore. He's a Robin. That's what he is. And there's nothing wrong with being a Robin. Heck, Marcus Golden is a Robin. There's nothing wrong with that. But Khalil Mack is not a Batman anymore. Those days are gone. He's a Robin now. There's well, nothing wrong go, with that. I wouldn't go so far to say that he's a Robin now and put him in the same category as Marcus Golden. I will say that. Do you want to see more disruptive plays out of him? Absolutely. I would not, though, overlook the abilities of Khalil Mack if I'm the Giants going into this game. Well, That's all I'm they can't because here's what happens. On a, on, a guy, on a guy who has done what he's done in the past, Okay, with the resume that he's done. And I know there's going to be people who are going to tune me out now because they don't want to hear the full picture. But a guy who's done what he's done in the past can always, on a given week, come back and haunt Bingo. you. Bingo. And that's He could always burn you on a given week because it shows that he's had it in him. It, but what I'm telling you is, to be elite, you've got you to gotta come every week. You've got you to gotta beat DeMarcus Ware. You've got to bring it week in and week out. I can't have you disappearing for three and four weeks at a time. Now, with the Giants' luck, he'll have a huge game Sunday and then disappear in the next month after that. So, you know. Well, then, and that's the whole point. From the Giants' know, perspective, then, all they have to worry about is how they match well, up. Well, that's him, what it is. Not how the rest you, of the league matches you, you, up. You, you have to make sure. You, but, well, again, my dispute is 
you can't call him elite anymore because he's not. And by the way, he doesn't show much interest in playing the run. When you have only three tackles a game over the course of two full seasons, that shows you he does not have much interest in playing the run. But Let's the, head, point, the point is, the point is, to be elite, you've got to show it to me consistently for the entire season, and you have to have the kind of numbers that indicate dominance week after week after week after week. He was that way with Oakland. His numbers with Chicago do not show that at all. His numbers with Chicago show me that he can flash on a particular week potentially, and maybe he can still hurt you on a particular week. But week in and week out, he's not that same player anymore. He's just not. And well, if you I ask think... anybody in Chicago, they'll tell you. They probably feel they got ripped off in the trade. Well, they certainly wanted more return. There's no doubt about it. I do think, though, 2018 was much more impressive than 2019. His first season with Chicago was not bad. It may have not been, once again, his 15th season with the Raiders when he, I thought, probably put together his best year in his career. But 2018 was much more disruptive and productive than 19. That I well, have no to question. Give no question, because, again, that was his fourth consecutive year of double-digit sacks. But what did he have last year? Eight and a half? Well, last year he only had eight and a half sacks. And that was in a full 16-game slate. In 2018, he actually missed two games. So he was more productive in less games in 18 than he was in 19 playing I mean, the entire season. Think, yeah. think, think about this. Think about this. Okay, and I know he was in the Pro Bowl last year, but think about this. Last year with the Bears, eight and a half sacks, 14 quarterback hits, and 47 total tackles. When he first busted onto the scene with the Raiders, in his second year, 15 sacks, 24 quarterback hits, 77 tackles. Practically dwarfing, I mean dwarfing, all of the numbers that he put up last year. Now, that guy with Oakland was elite. This guy, I mean, when he was with Oakland, every single year in Oakland, he had a minimum of 70 tackles. And in three of those four years, he had double-digit sacks. And in three of those four years, he had a minimum of 20 quarterback hits. He hasn't come close to any of those numbers with Chicago. That's more of a reason why I think if Robert Quinn plays in this game against the Giants, it changes the dynamics of the Bears' defense because Quinn's capable of having a 10-sack season. He showed that in Dallas last season. If Quinn doesn't play, then if you're to the Giants, now, unlike what you went up against Monday night with Bud Dupree and T.J. Watt, you just have to worry about Mac because they well, don't have somebody near Robert Quinn to fill in for Robert Quinn. So that's what yep. the guy that I'm monitoring this week, I'm monitoring Robert Quinn more so than Khalil Mack because if Quinn's on the field with Mack, that is a completely different Chicago defense. And I, to- and I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that would, that would make Mack a much more dangerous yeah. player if Quinn is there with him because now you have a dynamic duo. I'm not so sure that when one of them is not there that the other guy can really do enough damage in a game to, to make you shake in your boots. Let's head back to the phone lines. Chris is in New Jersey. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Chris? Hey, Lance. Hey, Paul. Thanks for taking my call. Just, just a, a point from last year on, on Cleo Mack. Giants had a lot of success against him last year uh, running at him. So, you know, sure. that, that was a nice game plan last year. That, so and I that's think, what you, know, you do against guys who are, who are more interested in getting to the quarterback. You want to take their teeth out by running at them. That's, that's always been the plan. People tried to do that to Lawrence Taylor. They said, look, the best way to, to deal with Lawrence Taylor is to try to run at him. That didn't work either, but it was, it was the least damaging because if you gave him room to track you down, you were, you were cooked. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, a lot of positives from the other night. Uh, I, you know, you guys went over quite a bit of them. Just, just a couple comments. You know, I was surprised that they didn't use the screen game a little bit more with Barkley, especially after that big run. I, I did anticipate if I had to do an, uh, an over-under, I was thinking two and a half on uh, Barkley in the screen game. But although, I, overall, I thought Garrett did a great job, you know, despite that. Well, the well, other I, thing with ahead, the screen – go, go ahead, Paul. No, go no, ahead. no, you do it. Well, I was going to say, with the screen game, you know, there were also times where they tried to get guys out in open space, and because of the Steelers and their ability to hustle from sideline to sideline, Devin Bush and Bud Dupree, I thought, were really effective in sometimes when they were on the complete opposite side of the field, hustling over to prevent the Giants from getting even more yardage in terms of open space. So, you know, part of that, I think, is the Steelers deserving credit for taking away some of those opportunities from the Giants. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I see that, you know, being a little bit bigger of a game plan this week with Barkley as well, get him in space uh, a little bit more. And, you know, um, so one uh, last point, you know, going back to last year, you know, the defensive takeaways has been a little bit of an issue. I, I think I counted seven games last year where the Giants had zero takeaways. So I'm hoping with Trubisky on Sunday, you know, they can, they can you, know, or, you know, rattle up two or three turnovers because that has been an issue. Uh, I know this is a new defense. We have new players. But I think uh, going back to last year, that, that needs to change. And, and I, I do like the discipline play of the team. And you could already sense the change, uh, you know, with, with Judge in just one game. Just, you just get a sense of the, uh, you know, the, the, the going to the ball more on defense and just a little bit more discipline even, uh, you know, on the offensive line. But uh, that's all I got. But, you know, hopefully we get some takeaways on, on Sunday. Thanks, guys. Hi, Chris. Appreciate the phone call. They the other thing that was Trubisky very obvious, twice, by Lance, the way, last year. Yeah. The, the other thing that was very obvious, if you watch the Giants' defense the other night, despite the fact that certainly Pittsburgh was able to to do what they needed to do, especially in the fourth quarter, uh, is that the Giants' defense is a lot quicker than it has been the last couple of years. I, I think they've really picked up their speed, and you know they're hoping that that's a component that will help them to get more production. Well, the other thing, speaking of tackling, I'm not going to necessarily equate this with speed, but Blake Martinez, I thought, did a nice job in terms mm-hmm. of plugging some holes, Paul, on Monday night. And I understand the numbers show that in terms of the team-high 12 tackles, 8 solo, but you know there were times in previous seasons where you wouldn't necessarily hit a guy in the backfield, and there was some semblance of that Monday night, which that, to me, was also somewhat of an encouraging sign. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, Blake Martinez is the signal caller. He's the middle linebacker. He's the guy who's got to keep everything together back there. He's he's the guy who's responsible for what I say before about the the uh, alignment, assignment, execution. Well, he's the alignment guy. That's that's his deal. The the the, the a a component in that deal is him. And I thought he did a solid job. Unfortunately, I think we would both agree there were too many uh, gaps in the secondary, where you know. Either guys were miscommunicating or maybe didn't do their assignments correctly. Or maybe, quite frankly, there was the one play, remember, on the one touchdown by Pittsburgh where you had Bradbury and Holmes collided on a rub yeah. route. I was just going to And they wiped up. each other out. <laughs> yeah. I felt like that happened multiple times, actually, Paul, even in the open field during a drive, too, for the Steelers because they ran that a few times. And, you know, let's not kid ourselves, Lance. That's a chemistry issue. That's not even communication. That's a chemistry issue where guys need to get a better feel for how they're playing what it is that they're supposed to do. And without preseason games, does it shock you that that guys would sometimes be running into each other? No, not at all. I think that you're right. That comes with feel. That comes with routine. It also comes with, though, Paul, in fairness, anticipating that that's something the opposition's going to run and have better spacing so that you can then, on the crisscross, not run into one another. Because if memory serves me correct, the James Washington touchdown is when that happened. Now, you could also argue... How does he fight his way into the end zone when he has two or three defenders on him? It was a great effort by Washington, but Washington got opened in the middle of the field because of two corners colliding and that giving James Washington an extra step. And then I believe there was a play on the opposite side of the field, too, where Juju Smith-Schuster got some leeway and wiggle room as a result of that. So you hope that as they're on the field more and more with one another, they can eliminate that and anticipate that from a spacing standpoint. The other thing that I wanted to add, just in terms of hustle plays that you were alluding to, Paul, James Bradbury was the one that tracked down Benny Snell and knocked the ball loose. I know they didn't recover the fumble, but you like to see that type of effort. And I thought Darnay Holmes was also active, even in terms of there was one play where he fought off a defender and then got to Ben Roethlisberger. So, you mm-hmm. know, those are the type of second effort plays you want to continue to see, especially from some, some of these young guys in the secondary. I agree. And let's not forget, too, and, and we've kind of glossed this over and we really shouldn't, I do think the Giants' pass rush was better, uh, especially in the first half. Maybe not as much in the second half, but, but I, you know, let, let's give credit to, uh, to Leonard Williams. He came out of the gate with a really strong game. Absolutely. Dexter Lawrence, Leonard Williams each had a sack. And you want to see more of that penetration from up the gut because that will hopefully bode well for the Lorenzo Carters and the Marcus Goldens of the world. Let's head back to the lines. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Joe is in Pennsylvania, and he joins us. Joe, what's happening? Um, 
the biggest problem I have. You know, I thought Daniel Jones played a great game. I was very happy with him with the pressure he was under and the balls he threw, you know. I thought they were good, but it's just the biggest problem is picking up your assignments. These guys are just running loose. There had to be ten guys that just ran through untouched. Am I wrong or what? Uh, is it just knowing who to pick up? That's that's the problem, you know. It had to be, you know. As soon as Barkley got the ball, he could have handed the ball off to one of them guys. They were right there meeting them in the backfield. They weren't even touched. That's the problem, not knowing your assignment, I guess, or picking well, up the Well, right. again, again, it's alignment, it's assignment, it's execution. At different times, all three of those things were, were faulty. But you must understand, this is a Steelers team that not only has tremendous speed on defense and tremendous talent on defense. I've told you guys this all last week. I picked the Steelers to go to the Super Bowl as long as Ben is able to play 16 games and the playoffs. I think they're a Super Bowl team. I really do. And, and it's no surprise when you look at that defense. And what does that defense do? They cause a lot of havoc because they run a ton of zone blitzes. Here's, here's the thing. Think of it, and I've done this many times before, think of it as a heavyweight fight, right? Matchups make fights. The Pittsburgh Steelers were a heavyweight champion. The Giants were simply a middleweight. And they went in there against the heavyweight, and they got knocked out in the fourth quarter. It's that simple. Now, they're not playing. They're not going up against the heavyweight champion on Sunday in the Chicago Bears. They're facing a fellow middleweight. This will be a much better gauge as to what the Giants are because they're facing a team that is now in their category. Okay? Uh, Okay. Okay, but Paul. Please don't panic uh, over what you saw the other night. Did I hear you say earlier in the week that, you know, Pittsburgh runs a lot of the same defense that the Giants do? Or no, I would never I, say that. Absolutely not. I thought somebody said that, you know. But it, I don't care who, who we're playing. If they're running oh, you have free to. and not blocking them, Paul, that's the problem. Matchups make fights. Free, they weren't even touched. Me or you could have got in front of them and they could have blocked them just as well, good, you know. If, again, you've got to understand, I did say before that the execution lacked. And, in fact, I really criticized the Giants' heavy package for not executing. When you've got three tight ends on the field, there is no reason why there should be guys breaking free into your backfield. That, that's, that's what I mean, Paul. They, so they Absolutely. I, I'm not disagreeing with that part of it. But you also have to understand, not every team has the ability to do what the Steelers did the other night. That is a heavyweight champion you're looking at, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, okay, I'm just saying it's one thing to get beaten, but they weren't beaten. They were just running free. That's, that's known. I, inv- I invite I the Bears to do the same kind of scheme that the Steelers ran. They don't have the speed or the talent to do what Pittsburgh did on defense. And if they run that same scheme, the Giants will be much more successful. And well, I, don't think, I, I, I don't think, Joe, uh, that everybody was running free. There were some times where, to your point, there was some openings. For example, Saquon went over to help the tackle, and then all of a sudden there was a free path to get to Daniel Jones. And then there were other times where the Steelers, because of the talent level that Paul was talking about, won their individual battles. And, and sometimes you've got to tip the cap to the elite talent that Pittsburgh has in terms of the defensive front. I think it was a combination of both. I don't think every single play where Daniel Jones may have had pressure on him was because somebody was left wide open to just come after the quarterback. Well, I'm just saying, I, he seemed like he was under tremendous pressure, even his two turnovers. You know, I, I really don't fault him for, for either one. Maybe that one in the, running to the side on the, to the uh, end zone there where and maybe he could have threw it a hair later, but he was trying to make a play and he, he got his arm hit. And the other one was where... Uh, they stepped back and intercepted it. You have to tip your hat there. So uh, I just hope they can know their assignments because I think they're playing tough, you know. So uh, thank you. Bye. All right, Joe. Appreciate the phone call. You know know what, Lance? I actually thought the Giants' pass protection was, was decent the other night. Again, considering who they were playing and the kind of scheme that the Steelers were running, I thought the Giants' pass pro was decent. I wouldn't say it was terrific, but I thought it was decent. And, and I thought Andrew Thomas actually played a really good game. 
Yeah, well, I think the pass protection was better than the run blocking. If you're going to no put doubt A about against that. B, right? Okay, yeah, no doubt about so that. So from that standpoint, yes, it was certainly better. And once again, I don't think that everybody had a free path to Daniel Jones throughout the game. I just think that there were maybe some miscommunication issues that led to opportunities for the Steelers. And then once again, there were also times where Steelers just won their one-on-one battles. As far as the two interceptions are concerned that the last caller brought up, Paul, Daniel Jones was not pressured on either one of them. The one in the red zone where Cam Hayward came up with his first career interception, I mean, you could argue Jones held on to the ball very long, and that gave Bud Dupree an opportunity, right, to eventually hit him. And then the other one, Daniel Jones was not pressured. It was the fact that T.J. Watt, I thought, made Paul a great read. Sensational play. Right? I mean, he initially was coming after the quarterback. Mm-hmm. He saw that Jones was mm-hmm. eyeing Evan Ingram. And I listened to what T.J. Watt said after the game to hear his breakdown. I put it up on social media because I thought it was a really good intellectual breakdown. And then he dropped back. He got his hand in the passing lane. And he came up with the interception. But pressure was not a result of either one of those interceptions at all. I agree with you totally. That's why T.J. Watt is as good as he is. Because he can make a play like that. The other one, well... You know, Daniel Jones should have thrown that ball to the invisible man in the fifth row. You know, yeah. if he if he, should, he either should have eaten the ball or thrown it away into the stands. He had no business trying to make a play there because, to be honest with you, if you watch the end zone camera, there's probably five Steelers compared to one Giant in the vicinity of where he was trying to throw it. So it, was was not go- it wasn't going to turn out good anyway. So That's he, why. You know, yeah, he, yeah he, made, he, he made a bad gut decision. It's the old philosophy. Any quarterback's coach or offensive coordinator, head coach will tell you, live to see another down, Paul. And that would have been the ideal circumstances of just living to see a third down. It was second down. Hey, take what the defense gives you, throw it away, and then line up again Mm -hmm. and see maybe if he could get a better look. Let's head back to the lines. Rick is in Tampa. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Rick? Hey, Lance and Paul. What's up, buddy? How you guys doing? Doing all right, Rick. What's on your mind? Yeah, you know, you got a little chill in the in the air up there, huh? It really feels like football season, doesn't it? <laughs> and hopefully it'll stay that way. That's the goal. <laughs> no, I, hey, listen, I see 49 at night and everything. It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm jealous of that when I'm 87 and sunny down here. I, I, I miss that part of football season, especially going to Chicago and everything. You know, I, I agree with you on the past. Uh, deep, uh, pass uh, blocking. I thought it was pretty good as well. I have to agree with that. I, I was encouraged. He had time to throw the ball deep and everything. Uh, so I have a couple points uh, re- regarding last week's game. Uh, one is a, just a simple one. Will Golden Tate be playing this week um, to add to the uh, wide receiver core? Um, and if that's the case, who's, who won't be playing? Um, I, I, I'm just Evan Ingram is not a tight end. I mean, I've called the show for years, and I, whether he's waiting for him to get hurt or underperforming and being a bust, he's, he's a wide receiver. Just get him out of this. I know, Paul, you're saying about this tight end blocking uh, package they had. If you're going to include him in that, that's got to stop starting this week. He can't do anything in that line, and, and let's just try to keep him to catch the ball. So I'm so frustrated with his play. And uh, uh, that's going to happen because they have to block to run the ball. So, like, second question is, is that going into this week, yes, against a team that's slightly inferiority uh, when it comes to the, the defense, how are they going to approach this run block to make it better? What, what, what are the actual words and what are going to be the actual tools and techniques they're going to do other than changing players, players which I don't think will be the case, to – to block for Saquon because that was we can't have that. It's been every year for the last couple of years with this happening. So where do you think that will go, and how are they going to try to correct that off for going into next week to actually block for him and get Ingram out of there? I mean, uh, he, he's just got to line up out, out on the wide out. I mean, he can't do anything on the inside. All right, let me break this down into three answers for you. Number one, we don't know about Golden Tate yet because they're practicing later on this afternoon, so we don't have a status update on him. Uh, I would think if he's back in the lineup that Ratley would probably be inactive. That would be my guess. I don't know that, but that would be my guess. Um, As far as Ingram is concerned, he just had a really bad game all around. 
in every way, shape, and form, he did not play well. It's disappointing because he's had a terrific training camp. And then the other night, it just did not go well for him at all. Nobody is going to dispute that, and I'm sure he'd be the first one to tell you. Uh, the last comment about what are you going to do with the run game, well, here's the thing. It's a totally different team you're playing. So you're not using the same blueprint against the Bears that you used against the Steelers. I think you will not see a whole lot of three tight end packages. Okay? You saw a ton of them last week. You saw, I think it was 20 snaps I counted, three tight end package. You're not going to see a lot of that because here's the idea. Against Pittsburgh, you wanted to play power football. You wanted to run to slow down their pass rush. You wanted to take pressure off of Jones. You didn't want to put him in bad situations. You wanted to milk the clock, slow the game down into the mud. You're not going to do that against the Chicago Bears. It's a totally different matchup. So what you might want to do is run some more double tight end sets instead of triple. Get away from the triple tight end set unless it's a short yarded situation. You could run some doubles. And you may wind up also running more fullback. Okay, you may see more Elijah Penny because you might run some more eye formation stuff as opposed to more double tight end or more triple tight end. You'll see some double tight end, I'm sure, because that's what Jason Garrett likes to do. He does like to run double tight end. But I think you'll see a lot more of Elijah Penny out of, out of an eye playing fullback against this opponent. Because against the Bears, you're not going to want to use the same blueprint, the same type of game plan that you wanted to use against the Steelers. You don't have to fear the Bears' pass rush as much. You don't have to fear their blitz package or their zone blitz. You don't have to fear that they're going to be as explosive either on offense. They're not as on either side of the ball. They're just not. So you can, you can go in with a totally different game plan. Right. Now, because Joe Judge has said that four weeks, he, he talks in that four weeks increment after the fourth game or up to the fourth game. Is it a matter of just them, obviously doing some changes, like you said, with that, with the schemes and everything, but just seeing how the line gels and just pushes off the snap of the ball and just starts to push and get holes for Saquon for the next two or three games before we get into this big divisional month of October? Well... Um, is that kind of the way it would go? I you kind of have to. Look, yeah. let's not forget, Thomas, Gates, Fleming had no preseason games. Right. But Gates no, has I, never I, played I, center. I, I, Hold on. Gates has never played center, too, in a game, too. Let's right. not forget about that. So, so yeah, you know. you, I mean, everybody has to give these guys some room to breathe. It wasn't pretty. No one is saying that it was good because it wasn't. The run blocking was was not good, okay? It was downright poor. No one's going to dispute that. The question is, do you overreact to it? That's the question. Do you overreact to it, or do you say, okay, look, there's a lot of stuff here that's very understandable, given the Giants' inexperience as a line together and given the Steelers' dominance in their front seven? Of course it was understandable. Appreciate the phone call, Rick. Thanks so much for uh, chiming in here. I think the other thing that you have to keep in mind, and Paul, this is something that you had touched on, you can't just assume that the way the Giants approach the Steelers is what is going to be duplicated for the other 15 games. Of course not. Okay? It's a matchup-driven league. The Lions, the Bears, and any other team that the Giants are going to face are all going to have different looks than the Steelers, and it's all about Jason Garrett adjusting accordingly. So if he thinks that three tight ends help him with the Steelers, it doesn't mean that he thinks he needs three tight ends to solve the Bears. I was looking. The Lions don't have a fullback, so they didn't employ that against the Bears. They they just have a number of running backs, just to give you an idea. Correct. But that doesn't mean that... Paul, the way the Lions attack the Bears is the way that Jason Garrett is going to attack the Bears because the Lions personnel is not the same as the Giants personnel. No doubt about it. We have to stop having the mindset, well, this team did this against that team, so therefore the Giants are just going to duplicate that. No, the Giants are going to have to evolve. People who are really upset and panicking over what happened the other night, you'd think that the Giants were playing the Steelers every single week of the season for 16 games. And if that were to happen, maybe the Giants would win three games out of 16 because the Steelers are that good. But they're not playing the Steelers every single week. They're playing the Bears this week. It's a middleweight. It's not a heavyweight champion they're playing. They're playing a middleweight. 
Well, it's certainly not Pittsburgh. Now, am I going to go so far to say that after one game, I know exactly what's going to happen moving forward from a positive standpoint, and I know exactly what's going to happen moving forward maybe from a negative standpoint? No. The sample size is still too too small. I think the identity of this team we're still trying to get a read on. Sure. But at this point, I would not dismiss and overlook any opponent in the NFL because I think you could say the same thing, Paul, for a lot of teams. They're trying to get a feel for each other, too, without preseason games. So we really don't have a great grasp of any team right now in the NFL other than a team like the Steelers who pretty much was taking the 2019 unit and carrying over to 2020. These other teams that are mixing and matching and bringing in new personnel and new schemes, you're going to need at least four games to really get a good read on what yeah, these teams there, are going to do moving forward. There are only a few teams that you can put on the upper shelf. And, I, and again, I, I, I'm going I'm going to come out and say it, Lance. You don't have to if you don't want to. The Bears are not in the class of the Steelers. They're just not. I'm sorry. They're not. I mean, you look at the Saints. You look at the Steelers. Uh, you want to look at the Ravens. The you want to look at the Chiefs. There are, there are a handful of teams that are clearly, clearly, if they stay healthy, we don't know with COVID and everything else, but if they stay healthy, there are a handful of teams that are better than, than the next grouping of teams in the league. That is very clear to me. I don't think there is any disputing that. And if you want to, you're welcome to, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go for it. And I'm telling you the Steelers are one of those teams on that top shelf. Let's head back to the phone lines before we wrap up shop. Staff is in Washington joining us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Staff? Hey what's up guys? So I'm gonna go on the mini rant. I know we're toward the end of the, the call, but some of these calls that I've been hearing and some of these pundit talking heads are just driving me crazy because, like, we need to, like, stop the doom and gloom. There was a lot that I looked at this team on Monday that I left away feeling good about because I haven't seen in the past, you know, four or five years. First off, tackling was better than I've ever seen it. It was very solid, very short tackling. I didn't see any mass missed assignments on the defense. What I saw was they, they, they got confused on the rub routes and they did it twice. And that's simple. You know, one plays up in the zone, one plays back in the zone. That's how you avoid that. Daniel Jones, everyone wants to knock him silly about that second interception, and it was a horrible interception. But what you really want to look at is that in the fourth quarter, they ran that exact same play and the exact same thing happened. And what did Jones do? He threw it out of bounds. That's what I care about. Are you making the same mistakes over and over, or did you learn from it the first time? This is the first time this offensive line has played together. No preseason, and we could, you couldn't have drawn a shorter straw of what defense to play week one. So everyone out here that's acting like, oh, let's fire Gettleman. You've already seen it all over Twitter. Like, do you remember how bad this team was? How many, how many Reese draft picks? even earned a second contract in the NFL versus how many picks he actually drafted. Like, we got a solid young group, a strong, a strong team here. I'm, I feel great. I, I, it, had the Giants went into this game and just been blown up, let's, let's, let's also, people keep saying the Steelers made mistakes to keep the Giants in the game. Okay, true, but let's flip that coin because the Giants made mistakes that kept the Steelers in the game. So it goes both ways. If you take away the interception of T.J. Watt, which was an amazing play on Watt, you take that, that interception, we were driving the ball already. He intercepted. That stopped the drive. And then the, the 19th Well, that was the very first the play of the drive. So. Uh, you're right. You're right. The T.J. Watt was the I mean, they weren't really the driving. Yeah, it was the very first play. You know, right, the, but, the only thing I'd like well, to right add to what, you, what you're saying here is that when I saw, you know, we knew who the Giants were going to play because the schedule obviously is already predetermined with the rotations that the NFL puts in play every year. When I knew who the Giants' opponents were going to be this year and you understood that they were going to have a new coaching staff and probably a lot of new players and then the whole exactly. COVID thing came into play, I said to myself, you know what? the two worst opponents that they could open with would be the Baltimore Ravens and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Those are the two teams. You don't want any part of those teams in week number one because that's going to be a monumental task. And you know what? They got one of them. (laughs) I mean, that's just – what what did you expect? You clean up a couple of plays on the Giants end. Like when we did get the the muff punt, that one play where, where Evan Ingram didn't, 
didn't come off the chip block and, and, and come out further into the end zone where, where, where Jones threw the ball. Mm-hmm. You know, little things that you could say, okay, I see that on film. Now, this is the first time this team is going to see themselves on film against an actual opponent. This sure. is when coaches earn their money. This is when the coaches are going to make adjustments. So like, everyone that's calling with this doom and gloom, it's so annoying. Like, we were in this game. <laughs> we were in the game that we shouldn't have been in. We were in a game that, and when I saw that on the schedule, I, I, I have my schedule on the fridge. There's a big L next to that. I, of what I predicted. The, <laughs> I, predict, I knew the Giants were going to lose that. And the fact that in the second half in, of the game, I'm thinking, there's a chance we win. That's a, good, that's a good omen. Like, everyone needs to calm down. Judge is coaching these guys up right. I haven't seen tackling like that since, like, 2015, 2015. That I felt like, wow, this team is tackling and they're and they're rapping and they're ganging up on the ball. You didn't see any of that, and the, some of it is also conditioning, right? This is the first time a defense has played four quarters, so we got no also got to think about yeah. that those those mental errors. So this is going to clean up. This is look look at the Eagles. The, Carson Wentz got hit ten times and sacked four times against the Redskins, and Daniel Jones was sacked once. Against arguably one of the best defenses in the league. Yeah, but, by the way, Carson the, Red, the Redskins also lost a number of starters though on his offensive line. In yeah, fans. And, and the Redskins <laughs> do have one of the premier D lines in, in the you NFL. Could say the same, but you could say the same for us. Our left Who? tackle was not supposed to be our left tackle this year. Our, our our right tackle was not supposed to be our right tackle this year. And our center never even played center before. So yeah, there have been, been changes. There have been, been no, changes. There's no, no doubt question. there were changes. But I'm and, saying and that the Eagles though were more unanticipated changes. I guess is what I'm saying. And Washington's yeah, got and a terrific was, front. And that's also a coaching yes. staff that's coming back. No one's learning an offensive anyway. scheme over there. No one's like learning a defensive scheme. That's that's continuity. Like that's your favorite thing that I actually love that you always point out. That teams of continuity are walking into this this league year mm-hmm. with a benefit. And sure. the Eagles have that benefit. The Giants did it. Like, like no, they, you're right. They, you're they right. Look at this and say, hey. There's a lot of great stuff that happened. And yes, my, my friend, listen, I want you to do me a favor and enjoy the game on Sunday, okay? Oh, I'm going to enjoy it. There I'm you go. I'm going to beat the Bears. All, All right, we'll talk to you right, again Sam. next week. Thank we you. appreciate the phone call. You got it. Thanks so much for weighing in. <laughs> he's fired well, up already. Well, he's fired up, but here's the thing. Doom and gloom or whatever commentary you're reading on Twitter has no indication of what the team's going to do. I mean, we really have no, to stop no. with but the there, whole there, thing there that, a, that translates to what the team's going to do. I, I Players think, are still going to have to go out there and execute, no matter what anybody says. You know what? I think half of the half of the fan bases in the NFL overreact to 0-1. Of course. You know, because yeah. that's the nature of, of what fans do. 100%. And that's why perspective is always needed within the conversation. All right. That is going to wrap up Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate all of you for chiming in on the phones as well as on Twitter. We'll try to answer some of your questions off the air. We are back up and running for Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, and we'll be streaming as part of the program, Joe Judge's press conference, which will fall smack in the middle of our show. Paul, look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Appreciate the conversation as always. You got it, Lance. For Paul DeTito, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Always stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.